Hey, welcome to the podcast for Scotts Hill Baptist Church. We're in a series called One, where we are using Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 7, to guide us through a better understanding of biblical unity in the body of Christ. We hope these messages help you discern what is true, what is right, and what is good. We pray it is an encouragement for you today. Enjoy the message. Good morning. It's great to see everyone here as we continue to worship the Lord together. Again, those of you who are online, so grateful for having you joining us today. We're living in a time where sociologists have told us for a long time that people live and act according to tribes. We live around people and we interact with people, those people that we have things in common with, those things that we connect with. Another word for that is just simply community. And we all live in a community of some sort. It's a group of people that we feel comfortable with, people that we connect with, people maybe that we have some things in common with, and we live in these communities. And a lot of times people can easily be discerned as to what community they belong to, particularly when it comes to sports. When you come to sports, people have favorite teams, and they developed communities built around those teams. And they all wear apparel many times that you can easily identify who they belong to. So we're going to have a little test this morning. I'm going to show you an image on the screen, and I want you to be able to shout out what community of football, professional football teams, these people belong to. If you know it, just say it very clearly, okay? Here's the first image. Who do these people belong to? Man, y'all not excited about that at all. (laughs) Only the greatest football team in all of franchise history, the Saints. And I've always said to you, if you're a believer, you should always pull for the Saints, right? (laughs) Okay, so these are the Saints. Who's the second group? Who are these? Panthers. How many of you are Panthers fans? Not many at all, huh? That's wild. And my heart really rejoices in that. Okay, so you've got the Saints, you've got the Panthers. Sometimes people belong to a team or a a, a community that maybe they're not really proud about, but they still support them. So who do these people belong to? (laughs) Yeah, the Browns. But I have to say, my heart beats with them because many years we refer to the saints as the ain'ts. And so, but so people belong to communities and communities are really important. Matter of fact, you live in a community. Some of you live in the Ogden community. Some of you live in maybe the the Carolina Beach community, the Porter's Neck community. Some of you live in a Hampstead community. Some of you live in a Scotts Hill community. We all live in different communities. And we we live within, and we call them those communities. We live in certain neighborhoods. We have certain communities that we participate in outside of that. We have communities such as a biking community. You get together and you ride your bikes together. Or a jogging community. Or maybe a workout community. Or maybe you have a community that quilts blankets together for people. Whatever the communities are, we all have communities. These are the places where we feel like we connect with people and that there's a connection and people understand us. And we feel comfortable there. Matter of fact, God created each one of us for community. When God created Adam, he was the first one to speak a negative part of the creation account where God said it is not good for men to be alone. Men, do you agree with that? Yes, we can. And so God created woman, his helpmate, to walk alongside him. God created us for community. Community is very, very important. 
One of the most thorough researches about relationships and community comes from what was known as the Alameda County Study. In the Alameda County Study, what they did was they followed the lives of 7,000 people for nine years. And when they looked at their lives, they saw the people who were not connected in community, who were isolated from other people, had a three times more likely opportunity of dying earlier. That's pretty significant. And so those people that were connected in community had a better chance of a longer lifestyle. In fact, they even looked at habits. They found this. They said that the people who had poor habits, poor habits, such as maybe overeating, obesity, smoking, drinking, those kinds of things had a greater chance of a longer significant life than people who have good habits but are not connected with people. So what do we discover from that? We discover this, that it's better to eat Twinkies with good friends than to eat broccoli alone, (laughs) right? Another study was done and it was recorded in the Journal of the American um, Administration Medical Society and 276 people volunteered and were injected with a virus for the common cold. And those people that took that injection, here's what they discovered. The people who were related in community with other people had a four time greater possibility of overcoming that sickness than those people who were isolated from other people. That's pretty astounding. That means this, that they, they, were, they had to cold for less longer. The virus was not as severe, and I'm not kidding you. The people who were isolated, who were in community with others, produced less mucus. Yeah, I mean, I'm not making that up. Less mucus. So the people who had relationships with other people had less mucus than those who were isolated. So it is literally true. Unfriendly people are snottier than friendly people. That's a reality. And that's a scientific study. We have been talking about unity. We've been talking about a biblical perspective of unity. We've been looking at one major passage, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn there again. If you don't, just open your devices or turn your attention to the screen. And what we've been looking at in this season is what does it mean to have biblical unity? Well, the first thing that we did is we defined what unity is. We said biblical unity is a supernatural act of the Father grounded in the work of Jesus on the cross by which the Holy Spirit works to make all believers one. Biblical unity has the entire trinity involved in the oneness. The Father is the one who thought it. Jesus is the one who wrought it. And the Holy Spirit is the one who brought it. And so what we see is in this unity, biblical unity, it's not something we can create. It is a supernatural act of the Trinity bringing us to be one. And as we've looked at this, we've looked at a couple of things in this study. We began by looking at there's one common calling. That's God's work of salvation for us. Last week, we looked at one common conduct. That's God's work of sanctification in us. But today, we want to look at one common community, God's work of solidarity among us. And so what we're going to do is wind up this series today by looking at what does it mean to be one community? 
So the Apostle Paul lays it out, verses 1 through 7. Here's how he says it. He says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There he's talking about the one calling and the one conduct. But today we want to look at the one community. And he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Father, that you would... Speak truth to our hearts today as we seek to understand a one community. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul closes out this section by talking about the one community. And that one community is a fact that there's a place for us where we enjoy being with one another. Now, he breaks it down into two triads and then a closing statement. And when we look at the two triads that he lays out... And in the closing statement, he's telling us three things we need to know about a common community. And the common community that we have as the body of Christ is something that the world cannot experience apart from a relationship with Jesus. So here's his. Here's the first thing he tells us. As a faith community, we belong together. We belong together. Now, that's the thing about any community. People want to find a place where they belong, a place where they feel at home, a place where they are accepted, a place where they are valued. That's why people get involved in communities. But what makes us belong together is far different than what the world offers in belonging. Paul uses the first triad here. He says there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. He says in this triad that there are three things that lead us to belong to one another that the world can never offer. And we want to break all three of these down and look at them very quickly. Here's the first one. We belong together in one body. One body. We are one body. We're many members, but we exist as one body. We are the body of Christ. We are the church. We are the family of God. Here's the thing. We're not a bunch of little bodies. We're not a bunch of little mini-me's running around. We're one body that belongs to the Lord Jesus. Now, let me say something here. Not one of us is the head of the body. I'm not the head of the body. The council of elders are not the head of the body. Our staff is not the head of the body. Our deacons are not the head of the body. There's only one head. The head of the body is the Lord Jesus himself. We are simply members of the body under his headship. Now, I want to tell you something. If a body has the wrong head on it, at best, it's a monster. If the body has no head on it, it's a corpse. And the reason a lot of churches are running around and they look strange is because they don't have the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody else is the head and it's not function according to its design. And some churches have no life in them because they're not allowing the Lord Jesus to be the head of his own body. And so what we're called to do is to be the body. 
And we function as members of the body. And although there are many of us, there's just a oneness. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, all of the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. So we belong together as one body. Now, if we're going to look at the body of Christ, there are a couple of things that we need to see and understand about Christ's body. Here's the first thing. We are a regenerate body. What does that mean? That means we are men and women, boys and girls, who have submitted our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We have been saved. We have been born again. A regenerate body is made up of people who have surrendered their lives to Christ. It's not a group of people who belong to an organization called the church. It's a group of people who belong to the living organism called the church. And those people who are true members of the body of Christ are men and women who have been saved by the grace of God. And I want to tell you that one day when the Lord Jesus comes back, he's going to take every person with him who has surrendered their lives to him. And there are going to be churches across this land whose memberships will be immediately caught up in the air with Jesus. Those are the ones in the living organization, organism. But the ones who are just a part of the organization, they're going to be left here to pay the bills and to run the ministries like they always wanted because they're not part of the regenerated body of Christ. You see, what makes us one is the fact that we're born again and we all experience a supernatural work of God in our lives. But we're not only a regenerate body, we're a local body. I've had somebody come to me before and says, I'm a part of the invisible church of God. There is no such thing as the invisible church of God. There's no such thing. Because the local body is to be a physical representation of Jesus Christ on earth. We belong to a local congregation. That's why often I refer to Scotts Hill as the body of Christ that meets at Scotts Hill. We're the body of Christ. We meet at Scotts Hill. Renovation is the body of Christ that meets in Hampstead. OVC is the body of Christ that meets in Ogden. Port City is the body of Christ that meets in Wilmington. You see, we are all local expressions, and God wants every believer to be a part of a local congregation in the life of the expression of the work of God in our communities. So we're localized. And I just want to say this. We need to be very careful about complaining about other bodies of Christ. I might not agree with some of their doctrine. I might not agree with some of their methods. I might not agree with some of their, their belief systems, but if they have been genuinely saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, who am I to complain and criticize the bride of Christ in another location? I need to be very careful about that. We're localized. But the third thing about the body, we're a universal body. We're a universal body. That means this, the body of Christ is worldwide. It's not just localized. The body of Christ meets in China. Underground. The body of Christ meets in North Korea. Underground. The body of Christ meets in Australia. The body of Christ meets in South America. The body of Christ meets all over the world in foreign settings like Sneed's Ferry. So the body of Christ <laughs> is everywhere. 
And so the body of Christ, the thing that makes you and me one, is the fact that we are one body regenerated by the Spirit of God to carry out the function of the Lord Jesus' plans on this earth. We belong together in one body. But not only that, we belong together in one spirit. There's one spirit, the Holy Spirit. And he is the one that works in the lives of every single believer. Not only are we one in a body, but we're one because of what the Spirit of God does in each one of us. Every person who has Jesus Christ as Lord has the Holy Spirit living inside of him or her. It's like a necklace with the beads on it. The beads can represent individual Christians. The string that ties them all together is the Holy Spirit running through each one of us. And it is his presence that makes us unified. And so in other words, if you have Jesus as the Lord, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. Sound like Oprah Winfrey. Everybody has the Holy Spirit. But as a child of God, we have the Spirit of God. How does he unite us? Let me just give you a few things that the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit draws us. John 17, 8 16, 8 says that he is the one who convicts us of sin and judgment and the righteousness of Christ. Every one of us have been drawn to the presence of the Father through the Spirit of God. If you're a child of God, he drew you. Secondly, the Holy Spirit baptizes us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, he says we're all baptized into the Holy Spirit. That is a one-time act that when you and I come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit baptizes us in him, baptizes us in the body of Christ. It's something that happens at conversion. It's not a subsequent act that takes place later. It happens one time at conversion. But the Holy Spirit also fills us. In Ephesians 5.18, we're commanded to be filled by the Spirit of God. And it's in the present active imperative, which means keep on being filled. Where baptism of the Spirit happens one time at conversion, the filling of the Holy Spirit is to happen constantly in our lives. Read through the book of Acts, and they were filled, and they were filled, and they were filled, and they were filled. We're to constantly walk in the fullness of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit empowers us. He's the one that gives us power over sin. He's the one that gives us the power for living our lives in a supernatural way. And lastly, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. It means he makes us like Christ. So we belong together because we're one body. We belong together because there's one Holy Spirit that lives in and through every one of us. And thirdly, we belong together because there's one hope. There's one hope. I love the way he says this. We have one hope. The hope is not a worldly hope. A worldly hope is wishful thinking. A worldly hope just says, I hope things work out. A heavenly hope is an expectant hope. It's built on the certainty of the character of a holy God that he will keep his promises. Many of us in this room grew up with Michael J. Fox. He was an actor and has acted for many, many years. He began with family ties as he was one of the teenagers in a, in a show. And then, of course, Back to the Future, 1, 2, 3, 45, you know, all of those. And so, but for, since he was a young man, he's been dealing with Parkinson's disease. And for decades, he has battled with Parkinson's disease. And he has written a number of memoirs. Well, he's just come out with his fourth memoir. Just came out this past week. And in that memoir, he speaks about the struggle that he's had with Parkinson's disease. And he said that his faith 
was his optimism. Optimism was his faith. And no matter what he's been through, and no matter what difficulties, he always thinks in a positive, optimistic way. But recently he confesses something that I think is very startling and something that we all know. Here's what he wrote. My attempt to make an easy, any sense of it leaves me feeling indifferent. I'm numb, weary. Optimism as a frame of mind is not saving me. If I could sit down with Michael J. Fox, I would share with him the hope that you and I have in Christ. And it goes far beyond human optimism. It goes far beyond anything that we can just be wishful about. The thing that makes us belong together is not just one body and one spirit, but there's that one hope. And here are the three things we know about it. We have the hope of glory. Because Jesus promised us that we in him would live forever. And Colossians 1.27 is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Secondly, we have the hope for the world. In 1 Peter, he says that we are to share with those the hope that is within us. And we know that that is the hope of the world. Finally, we have the hope of Christ's return. In Titus chapter 2, verse 3, he says, as we look forward for, toward the glorious hope of his coming. And these are the things that unite us. We belong together because we're one body. We belong together because there's one spirit living within us to do his work and his pleasure. We belong together because there's one hope that we live by. And when we gather together as a body, as a family, with the Lord Jesus as the head, we belong to one another. You belong to me. I belong to you. We have all failures in our lives. We all have shortcomings in our lives. We all have weaknesses in our lives. We all have struggles in our lives. But because of the gracious work of God's grace in me and in you, we are one body. We belong. And I want you to know that even though we have failures, we should never point our fingers at other people because the grace of God is in their life as it is in our life. And we're one family together. We belong. But here's the second thing Paul says. You see, real biblical community is not that we just belong together. As a faith community, we believe together. He moves into the second triad. And he says that you believe together. He says that we have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. He moves from belonging to believing. And he's saying that not only do we just receive one another, but we operate within the same belief system. Now, it doesn't mean that we believe every single thing together because we have some differences in our convictions and things such as that. But in the core principles of the Christian life, we believe in common. He mentions three things. Here's the first one. As a faith community, we believe together in one Lord. One Lord. He's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ right here. You know what the number one confession of the early church was for all believers? Jesus is what? Lord. 
That's the number one confession of the early church. Jesus is Lord. And every time you see Jesus in the New Testament, it's usually in reference with the other words, the Lord Jesus, or Jesus the Lord, or Christ the Lord. Now, it's very important for us to realize that together we believe the same thing about Jesus. Because when we say Christ the Lord, it reminds me of two things. Number one, Jesus is Savior. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says that there is no other name given under heaven by which men and women can be saved. There's only one Savior. And we believe that together. We don't say that there are multiple ways to heaven. There's only one way. And every one of us in the body of Christ has experienced the exact same path. And that's the Lord Jesus. So we agree together that there's one Lord, there's one Savior for all of mankind. But secondly, not only is he Savior, but he's sovereign. Colossians, verses 1, 15 through 20 says that he is before all things and all things are in him. He created all things and all things are held together by him. He is sovereign over everything. He is the King of kings. He is a name that's exalted above every other name. There is no one in all of the universe like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are believing together that he is the only hope for humanity. That's what makes the church a rich community. Because there's only one way. There's only one truth. And there's only one life. And that is Jesus. So when we believe together, we say there's one Lord. But the second thing is this. We believe together in one faith. Now, what does it mean by one faith? Is he talking about one saving faith where we trust Christ? That's certainly implied, but that's not the meaning here. When he talks about one faith, he's talking about one doctrinal set of truth that we live by. In other words, we have one revelation, and that is the Word of God. We live according to the truths of the Word of God. We are people of his book. We're people of the revelation that God has given to us. Now, the interesting thing is so many people have been divided and churches have been divided over this very issue of one faith. But when he's talking about the one faith, he's talking about the key tenets of the gospel. And what happens many times is we get off track as churches because we no longer major on the majors, we no longer minor on the minors, but we conflict the two and we get in arguments with one another. Now, here's the thing we have to understand. For there to be unity, there has to be an agreement on the essential doctrines of the faith. And that means this. We just hold to the essential truths of who is God, who is the Trinity, who is the Father, and who is the Son, and who is the Holy Spirit. What are their distinct responsibilities? Who is man? What is sin? What is the future of man without Christ? What is salvation? What is redemption? We go through the key doctrines of the scripture and we walk in unity in that. Now, when it comes down to other issues that may be issues of conviction or maybe issues that can lend itself to interpretation of different positions, in the essentials, we have unity and the non-essentials, we give one another liberty. You might have convictions in an area I don't have convictions about. And as long as neither one of those contradict the teaching of Scripture, we're okay. You may interpret a a passage of Scripture a little differently than I interpret it. 
As long as it doesn't undermine the teaching of the gospel, we're okay. And so what we do is we walk by the essentials. In the liber- in, in non-essentials, we give each other liberty. But in all things, we walk in charity. Because we're not going to agree on every single issue. Now, I will say this. Anytime somebody takes a non-essential and they try to make it an essential, there becomes disunity in the body. When somebody takes something that's non-essential to the gospel and they want to make it essential to the message of the gospel, and this might be a conviction or it might be an interpretation that they have, but it's not essential to the truth of the message of the gospel, then there becomes disunity in the body. And we're never to do that. And when that happens, it needs to be confronted because we are to preserve the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And if someone begins teaching a false doctrine that is clearly false, then it must be confronted and it must be removed for the unity of the body of Christ. But we walk and understand by faith the essential teachings of God's word. That brings unity. Not only one Lord, but there's one faith. And then he goes to the third one. We believe together in one baptism. There's one baptism. Now, what is he talking about here? Some scholars think that he's talking about baptism of the Spirit. But that's not what he's referring to because he's already referred to the Spirit of God. And in this triad, he's dealing with the belief system and he's dealing with specifically water baptism. The early church would have known that because he begins by saying one confession, there's one Lord. There's one doctrinal belief that we're going to live by, but there's one baptism. It's water baptism. Now, the Apostle Paul is not getting into the modes of baptism or anything like that, and here's why. In the early church, there was only one mode of baptism, and it was immersion. Every baptism in the Bible was by immersion. The word baptize in the Greek is baptizo, which means to dip under water. So there was no argument in the early church about whether you're sprinkled or you're immersed. There was one set of beliefs in the early church. And then there's another thing. Not only did a person proclaim that Jesus is Lord, but baptism was a public testimony that they belonged to Jesus Christ. And in that culture, once a person professed Jesus as Lord, the next step was to stand publicly and be baptized. It is a picture of a person who was dead being buried into the water. And then that person being brought out of the water and living a brand new life for Jesus. When a person in that culture was baptized, they could lose their entire family, would disown them. When they were baptized in that culture, they could lose their job. They can lose their place where they lived. They can lose their livelihood. They could lose their life. And they made a public declaration that Jesus is Lord. And that unites the body together. I want to say if you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior and you've been baptized, that's your public profession. If you have received Christ as Lord and you've never been baptized... Let me encourage you to follow the biblical principles of obedience and take the next step to public baptism, which demonstrates that you are sold out to the Lord Jesus. And I want to encourage you, that unites the body. It celebrates with your profession of faith, and it gives accountability within the body of Christ. So you see, we belong together because there's one body, 
We belong together because there's one spirit and there's one hope. We believe together because there's one Lord. There's one faith and there's one baptism. But notice how he closes it. As a faith community, we build together. You see, we not only believe, we not only belong, but we got to do something with what God has given us. We build. And so not only do we hold one another accountable and love one another and accept one another as the children of God, but we do something with it. God has called us to move forward and to impact our community. Paul wraps this up in a summarized statement. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Because God is sovereign, and because he's over the lives of his people, and he's in the lives of his people, and he's working through the lives of his people, and because the Holy Spirit has given every single believer a gift as he has discerned, then we are to move forward in one, and we are called for the purpose of building We are to serve one another in the body and build up the body of Christ. We are to share with the community so that they can have the message of the gospel. And we do this as the Father is working in us and through us for his glory and for his namesake. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing this statement to the church, not to the world. And let me tell you what he's not saying He's not subscribing to some kind of form of pantheism that God is everything and everything is in God. Neither is he uh, um, subscribing to some form of universalism where everybody is our children of God. That's simply not true. All people are creations of God, but only in Christ are they the children and the sons and daughters of God. So what is he saying here? The word you is implied all throughout this passage. Here's how it would read in the Greek. One God and Father of you all, who is over you all, who is through you all, and who is in you all. Every single one of us. Two things we know about this. Number one, Paul must have been a southerner, right? (laughs) Y'all. Secondly, Paul understood that God, who did all this work for us and in us, wants to work through us together. What would happen if every church in Wilmington understood the unity of community and we all work together, regardless of our denomination, regardless of our methods, regardless of our traditions, regardless of the color of our skin? What would happen if every church in our community did that? What would happen if every member in this church did that? Then God's work of the gospel would permeate every place where we live, where we work, where we play, where we gather. Jesus, in John chapter 17, Praise what we call the high priestly prayer. And in the high priestly prayer, he is praying for his disciples. But here's what's amazing. In that high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for me. 
2,000 years later, Jesus had us in his mind when he is praying. Because here's what he writes. He says, I do not ask for these only, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, through the testimony of the disciples and the revelation of God's word. God, Jesus is praying for us that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is not praying that he hopes that we'll be one. No. He's praying that because these things are true, we will be one. What does biblical unity have to do with how we live our lives. Let me give you three things in closing. Three things in closing that flow right out of this verse. Number one, our unity is a testimony to the world of God's supernatural work in our lives. When you and I walk in unity, it is a testimony of God doing some supernatural things in our community. Why? Because we are a diverse body. We come from different backgrounds and different experiences and different struggles and different pains. We may have, before Christ, been at odds with one another. But in Christ, the world sees something that doesn't happen anywhere else. That people who were at opposite extremes on the lines of continuum of anything that you can imagine, in Christ, they are brought to be one. And when we walk in biblical unity, the world stands back and it takes notice and says, Wow! Who would have ever thought those two people would love each other? Biblical unity would be like taking Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer and putting them in a room together and walking in perfect peace. That won't happen in this world. And when the world doesn't see it, doesn't believe in it that it could happen and God has called us you me to belong to believe and to build in a way that the world stands back and is just blown away by the power of God in our lives secondly our unity is a testimony to the world that Jesus is God's son. Jesus says that they may be one so that the world will know that you sent me, Father. When you and I live in unity, not only do they see the supernatural act of God, but here's what they see. They see Jesus is real. He is real to us. He is real in our lives. He is real the way that we carry ourselves. This thing of Jesus is a reality. And when we don't live in unity, then what happens is the world doesn't even take notice of the Lord Jesus because they don't see him in the church. And sometimes Jesus is knocking on the door, begging to be let in to his own church that the world would know. So when you and I walk in unity, the world doesn't see us. They see the Lord Jesus. And they take notice and say, wow, this is real. Here's a third. Our unity is a testimony to the world.
of God's love for them. If you go and look at verse 23 of that same chapter, 17, here's what Jesus says. He adds to it, not only that the world may know that you sent me, but he adds this phrase, that they will know that you love them. Wow. We want to convince people that God loves them, but they don't see us loving one another. We want to convince the world that Jesus loves them, but we can't stay in one another. And when they hear us talking negatively about another church or another group of believers or another people that are meeting over here, they assume that there must be a lot of different Jesuses out there. We are to walk in unity that the world would know, wow, God's loved you. I want you to know something. God loves you. And you can have this same kind of unity. In most churches, if they would tell people you can have the unity that we have, people would say, no, thank you. I've got that at work. What you deal with, I deal with every day. Why do I want the same? Unity is important. There's one calling. There's one conduct. There's one community. And I want to challenge you. While the world is falling apart around us, we have the opportunity like never before to be who God wants us to be now. We belong. We believe. Let's build for the glory of Almighty God. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, if you're watching online and you're not a believer, meaning that you've never surrendered your life to Christ, let me just call you. Don't measure Christianity based upon Christians. You measure Christianity based upon Christ because he's perfect, we're not. But we want to call you and say that your greatest need is the Lord Jesus and would you consider surrendering your life to him? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. When we finish praying, the band's going to be coming up and we're going to sing a song together. When we conclude that song, that song is going to be our testimony, our declaration today of unity as a body. And I want to invite you to stand and to sing. I know we're going over just a couple of minutes, but in a moment I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to sing together. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, for the convicting parts of your word. We ask, Father, that you would speak and challenge us. And, Father, that you would change us. I pray, Father, that if there are any believers in here today that are at odds with another believer, that you would lead them to make that right. I pray, Father, that we would seek to preserve the unity that comes from the Spirit of God with the bond of peace. And that we would pursue that more than we would ever pursue our own rights. Father, protect this community. May this community grow deeper and deeper in the days ahead as we trust you with all of our lives. We ask, Father, that this church would be a representation of biblical unity in our community. And, Father, as we belong and believe, may we build together for the glory of Jesus. And I pray in his name. Amen. Would you stand? Thank you for joining us on the Scotts Hill Podcast. Thank you to those who continue to give generously to this ministry. If you want more information about Scotts Hill, or want to learn more about Jesus, go to scottshill.org slash next steps. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. You can also share it with your friends via text message or take a screenshot and post it to your social media stories. Be sure to tag us at Scott's Hill. Thanks so much for listening. Till next time.